How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Four years after a near-death experience, General Motors is well and on the road to recovery. It is profitable again, and the U.S. Treasury is gradually selling its stake in the company. The GM bankruptcy and bailout is one of the great stories in the annals of American business. And over the next hour, we'll discuss that with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco. We are pleased to have with us Ed Whitaker, former chairman and CEO of AT&T and General Motors. As the automaker emerged from bankruptcy in the summer of 2009, he became chairman of GM and in January 2010 was named CEO, a post he had until just before its IPO later that year. Please welcome Ed Whitaker to Climate One. Thank you, Gray. Uh, and before we begin here, I have to offer a disclosure that General Motors is a supporter, financial supporter of Climate One and the Commonwealth Club. And uh, let's let's fix your ear. See that, that, I you know, have a misshapen ear or something. We're going to get another microphone, uh, perhaps, that we might use, the handheld, if that doesn't work. So let's begin uh, the story of uh, your involvement with, with GM. Uh, you're happily retired, and you get a phone call from the car czar. So tell us tell us what happened when you got that call from Steve Ratner. I got a call from uh, Steve Ratner, who was the car czar uh, under the Treasury Department, and he said, Ed, I haven't seen you in a while. It had been 10 years since I'd seen him. And uh, I had known him in, in uh, New York and financial circles, and he said, I'd like for you to think about becoming chairman of General Motors. And I said, why? He said, I don't know anything about cars, barely know how to start one. I'm a General Motors owner, but I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, you know, the, the uh, company is very important to this country. Uh, it needs some good leadership. You've run a big company, a unionized company, and you don't know anything about the car business, and that's good. And so I said, well, Steve, I don't think so. I'll talk to you later. He called back the next day and made the same proposal to me. But then he began to put it in words about this would be a great service to the country and how much the country needed GM. But to my credit, I still said no. Well, he called a third time, and uh, he got to me that time, and I got to my patriotic duty, I guess, uh, got to me, so I finally said, yes, I'll come do it. But it took them a week to get me. But it was uh, it was good. I said yes. And then one of, you got inside the company, and you went to meet the CEO, Fritz Henderson, and you walked into his office, and you asked him for an org chart. Tell us about that meeting and that encounter. Well, Fritz Henderson was the newly appointed uh, president of General Motors, and uh, was in charge, and I walked in and said, uh, I was the newly appointed chairman, I said, Fritz, I'd like to see uh, the organization chart for General Motors, who reports to who and what the different departments are. And there was no organization chart. 
And uh, right away, I, I got a clue. Maybe things weren't going to be like I thought they were going to be. And uh, I said, why no organization chart or something to that effect? And I sort of got the answer. We'd cut out a lot of human resources functions to, change, to save money and then some other things. But nevertheless, there was no organization chart to be had. And you asked some executives at that time why GM fell into the ditch, why they uh, went bankrupt, and what was the response of some of the people? Well, uh, astoundingly, some of the senior management at GM, I asked the question, what went wrong here? And the answer was from some of the senior management, we didn't do anything wrong. The economy got us. But we did nothing wrong. We're General Motors. It's impossible to fail. We did nothing wrong. But as we all know, I asked the question then, well, what about Ford and what about Volkswagen and what about Toyota and Nissan a lot of other? There was really no answer for that. But the prevalent feeling in upper management there was uh, we did nothing wrong. The economy got us. I think that's the best way I can describe it, Greg. And what about the board? The board also was responsible, presumably, for not only hiring the chief executive, uh, Rick Wagner, at that time. What do you th- role do you think the board, responsibility the board had for GM uh, going off the cliff? Well, you'd certainly have to say quite a bit. When I got there, uh, there were, I think, only four existing board members that elected to stay on the board. The others had left for one reason or another. And there were four, and they were relatively new on the board. But obviously, uh, they had been convinced by management or had convinced themselves that GM was on the right track and would recover from the economic woes or quality woes or whatever. But certainly the board had a responsibility. Because there was what went five years without making any money. A long time. A very long time. A long time. And then you came to the point where you decided that Fritz Henderson couldn't stay, that basically the only thing that had really changed at that time was a few board members, the CEO, but everything else was the old GM, even though they were calling themselves the new GM. So how did you come to that decision that you needed uh, to change leadership? Well, that was a really a pretty easy decision to come to. And I want to say that Fritz Henderson is a very fine person. And he's a car genius and had an incredible recall of everything that had happened, everything that had gone on. But unless you're there, you can't understand how much bureaucracy existed at GM. They had the matrix system of management, which meant that everybody had more than one boss, and therefore they had no boss. And matrix management is supposed to be collaborative, but it isn't because you collaborate so much, but you never do anything. You never get anything done. You never take any actions. And Fritz and some of the other senior managers, very fine people, smart people, but they had grown up in that system, Greg, and just couldn't step out of it, in my judgment. And so you came to, how did you tell Fritz that it was his time? You gave initially. I think he had what six months to turn it around, or was uh, it ninety days? The board decided early on that uh, we wanted to see a lot of changes in ninety days. At the end of that ninety days, we didn't see any changes. 
with a lot of encouragement, help, uh, consultations, uh, discussions, etc., but not much changed in that 90 days. And so we made the decision that we would uh, make the moves of all the top management. Okay. And then also Fritz Henderson at that point, he was a lifer, as many were at that point yes. at GM. And he, uh, because of the bankruptcy, a lot of them had their pensions wiped out. But you decided to hire him back as a gesture of appreciation for his lifetime of service. Well, as I said, Fritz was a, a brilliant car guy, and he had a, a brilliant mind. It didn't seem right to me that a guy had worked there 30 or 40 years, and you dismiss him with nothing. And I mean nothing. He didn't get anything. And uh, Fritz had great knowledge, so we we hired him back as a consultant for a short period of time in China, which he was uh, well aware of what was going on in China with General Motors. But that's the reason we did it. I, you call it whatever you want, but it wasn't right after all those years, and he put in many hours to just get nothing. Mm-hmm. So were we there, did that. Were there other people that also had their pensions go away or bondholders took a haircut? There were other people. There was a lot of pain in this <laughs> Well, I got there after the bankruptcy, but obviously a lot of people in all those categories got hurt. Bondholders, certainly the old stockholders got wiped out. Uh, everything happened. I got there right at the end of that, but there was a, there were a lot of people hurt, certainly. You tell about another interesting meeting where you w- walked into the UAW. Tell us the story of driving over and your, your meeting with Ron Gettelfinger, the uh, head of the United Auto Workers. Well, Ron Gettelfinger was the head of the United Auto Workers, and he had dealt with the government through the bankruptcy. And uh, I started asking the question because... I had always at AT&T interfaced quite a bit with the union, in fact, a lot with the union, and considered them friends, co-workers, uh, uh, people that were part of the business just like I was. And I asked the question, who deals with Ron Gettelfinger? Well, apparently nobody did, or it was way down in the organization. And so I got in the car and drove to the Solidarity House down Jefferson Avenue, walked in to the Solidarity House, unannounced, uh, greeted the receptionist, told her who I was, Ed Whitaker, the new chairman of General Motors, and I'd like to see Mr. Gettlefinger. And things got quiet there. And uh, What was the look on her face? Yeah. And she said, just a minute, Mr. Whitaker. She disappeared, and in a couple of minutes, Ron Gettlefinger came down the stairs and greeted me and we got acquainted, went back to his office and had a nice conversation. And you liked him. Why did you like him? I liked him because he had a real feeling for General Motors and the uh, employees there. He wanted the company saved. He wanted it to make money. Uh, I thought he had a very good feeling about GM's role in the United States uh, manufacturing industry. He, he just cared a lot. He wanted it to succeed. He wanted to help. He wanted to do whatever he could. You just come away from that with a good feeling, and I did. And what was the reaction back at the Renaissance Center at GM headquarters when they found out that you went rogue and did this? Well, the first thing was security got very upset because I did it on my own, and you're not supposed to drive around Detroit, as I had learned, by yourself. 
yes, not a good thing to do, and certainly you wouldn't drive down to the Union Hall. But uh, the reaction was, well, that's never happened before, you know, and don't do that again without security going with you, and oh my God, what does this mean? There were, there were reactions all over the map. And But you started having breakfast with him regularly. Yeah, I did. At the Motown Diner on, on, on Jefferson Avenue. It's uh, midway between General Motors at the Renaissance Center and the Solidarity House. And we would meet there at 6.30 in the morning and talk about things that he could do and I could do to get GM going again. Just the two of you? Yeah. And I got the sense reading that he worked his way up kind of like you did, that you kind of identified with him in terms of your own paths, similar paths in your respective organizations. I think that's right. I think that's why we made the connection. Uh, First of all, he's a smart guy and he cares a lot. And I think we had similar backgrounds, so we just hit it off and uh, he worked with us and we worked with him and we got things. That helped a great deal. Did there's been some talk about it? And understand this was a little bit before your time, but with that labor, uh, that did they get a better deal than say some bondholders in terms of the the restructuring of the company? Well, I think they probably did. Uh, I think there's a lot of people associate that with politics, et cetera, et cetera. But there were a lot of union people that lost their jobs too, and so I think there was a lot of hurt among the entire workforce. If you're just joining us on the radio, our guest today is Ed Whitaker, former chairman of and CEO of AT&T and General Motors. Was there any private capital that would have come forward? Was there options to a government bailout at the time that uh, GM was in the ditch? I'm asked that a lot. Was there any private money, any money from anywhere that would come in and save General Motors so the government didn't have to? And I can tell you unequivocally, there wasn't one dime out there. Nobody. I mean, nobody in the world would put money into GM. And the government did exactly the right thing bailing out GM. And I think if you think about it, it's the largest manufacturer. Had GM gone bankrupt, it's not only the GM employees, but there were, there were a million people employed by the suppliers to GM. And so it wouldn't have been the GM jobs lost. It would have been many times that, millions of jobs with suppliers, car dealers, everybody that's associated with that. So it was absolutely the right thing to do. But your answer is there was no money, no money from any anybody except the U.S. Treasury. You and I are really the, the taxpayer. Right. So they, they stepped in. Uh, did the government meddle in the management of General Motors? No, the government did not meddle in the management of General Motors. One of the things uh, we got clear up front was, look, you want us to turn this around, and you've charged uh, me, and I put the management team together to make this thing go. And certainly we want you here. We want you. We want to answer any questions, but you've got to stay out of the day-to-day management, and they did. They were, good, they were very good partners, Greg. So they never called up and said, oh, that car is not so good. No, change, you know, that cup holder. That's they probably ugly. thought it, but they never <laughs> called. They let us run it. One of the really colorful characters at, at, uh, at, uh, General Motors is, is Bob Lutz, iconic, legendary car guy. Right. 
uh, also very command and control guy, uh, someone who knows cars really well, and he had a very broad brief in General Motors that you write had fuzzy lines of responsibility exactly what he did. So how was it interacting with Bob Lutz? Well, I have great respect for Bob. He, uh, you know, he he was a real car guy. He had worked at some other companies, uh, Chrysler and Ford, I think, and done some other things. And he invented or or put together or designed the Viper. And all of you know what the Viper was. It was a a car made that was really fast and sleek and so forth. But Bob was uh, a part of the culture at GM where you talk about things, but nothing ever gets done. And we had to decide, one of the first things we had to decide at GM was, what do we do here? What's the purpose of this company? And really nobody could answer that for me. So we had the first meeting with the new management and says, uh, the question was, what does GM do? And we finally decided after a few minutes, Tom Stevens, who was chief engineer at that time, said, well, we should design, build, and sell the world's best vehicles. And I said, boy, that sounds good. Everybody can understand that. Let's go communicate that to everybody in the company. And here's what we're going to do, and we're going to simplify and go do it. And Bob just wasn't uh, a part of that. We're going to simplify for a minute. We're going to switch microphones here and have you. Yeah, that's not working so well. So we'll. That, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Is that there better? we go. Yeah. Um, How does that this work? look hanging off of my? The uh, you can you can uh, look like an earring or yeah, what? You have, well, you're in you're in San Francisco, so it's yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Um, so didn't work out so well with Bob Lutz. You you've said you're not a fan of the Matrix system. You're also not a fan of consultants. Uh, tell us about some of the consultants that were running around uh, GM and what you did about them. Well, my uh, my previous life at AT&T, I had seen a few consultants over the years, as you might guess, and in almost every case, they would tell you what you already knew. And I guess it was a way to prolong doing anything, and that's not true of all of them, certainly. But GM had consultants stacked on top of consultants, and they would call in consultants to study something or make a recommendation when I thought it was mostly common sense. Again, this is not everybody, but most of them. And it was a way to prolong making a decision. And so uh, I just don't think you should pay people to tell you what you already know, Greg. And so you had a, you cleansed, cleaned out a lot of the consultants. Um, you talk a, a lot about uh, some of the senior management team and, and some board members, and uh, there's really only one woman, Susan Doherty, that, that was in the senior management of that level. So Sheryl Sandberg has a new book out, a lot of attention about women in the workplace, et cetera. What was the culture for women executives at GM, and, and how did you address that in any way? Well, I don't think there was any deliberate uh, culture there or any deliberate actions that affected that one way or another. The the uh, head human resources person was a woman. That's a top job. Uh, Susan was a top job. Mary Barrow was a top job. Their so, environmental person, Beth Lowry, was a, right there. So Exactly. Yeah. And so for whatever reason, it just hadn't happened, but we did promote more and, and move some in. And how about on the board? On the board, we had uh, very good representation uh, from women. Very good. 
the Chevy Volt uh, was you wrote the Chevy Volt was was a game changer. So how was the the Chevy Volt a, a game changer for Chevrolet? Well, I think yeah. there's a real future for electric vehicles. I don't know if you agree or disagree, and certainly there's a lot to be done. But the Chevy Volt, I think companies have a responsibility to work on new technologies, and so we certainly worked on it hard while I was there. But the Chevy Volt was the first electric vehicle where you didn't have range anxiety. That's the word that you use in the car industry, and that is, my God, can I get back home? How far can I go and get back to where I want to go? Well, the Volt didn't have that problem. And the Volt, uh, I got to drive, I guess, the very first one or, the, or some of them. It's a very nice car. It's not range-limited. You know, you go so far on battery, then there's a nice little small gasoline engine that recharges the batteries. And I think it has a real future. I, I do think it's a game changer. I know there are problems with distribution systems. Uh, you can't plug it in everywhere. But I think we have to continue to explore that. And I think it's a very thoughtful car. People complain it costs too much, like thirty low $30,000 after tax credits. But I do think it's going to catch on more and more, and I think we have a responsibility to keep pursuing that. It became a real political punching bag. I think that was the term that your successor, Dan Ackerson, uh, used. Why did the Chevy Volt become politicized when it's just a car? Why does anything become politicized? <laughs> I, yeah. do, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, some people thought we were frittering away the taxpayers' money. Some people said the technology would never work, but it did. It can be improved. There's certainly a lot yet to be done in batteries. Uh, but the Chevy Volt battery is good for 10 years. It goes a long time. But I can't answer why it got politicized. Why does anything, you know? It sold 24,000 units. 24,000 volts were sold in 2012. It's one of even one of Chevy's lower-selling cars. Do you think that it will take up? What will it take to? I, I do think it will continue to do well, or do better. And I think the distribution system will pick up uh, distribution of electricity, electricity. to, to yeah. charge it. Uh, and I just think we all need to be responsible on climate, environment, and it certainly addresses that. So, yes, I think it will continue to do better and, and better. And you wrote that the Chevy Volt was not about making money. Was it about sort of atoning for the, uh, General Motors killed the first pure electric car? Was it also brand restoration for General Motors? To There, were, there was no atonement there. <laughs> okay. That's, that's the wrong word, Greg. What it was, I think, was a responsible corporation attempting to do the right thing and explore this new technology and continue to explore it. And I think GM will do that as with as will other manufacturers continue to do that. But it's just an effort to find a new propulsion system that's friendlier to the environment, climate, et cetera. And you think there's, you said there's promise for EVs. Do you think they'll become more than a niche, that they will becoming more than an urban car for people on the, uh, on the coast, that EVs will be for the mainstream American market? Well, I'm not sure I have the answer to that, but I think it will gain in popularity and in acceptance. And I think, I think the future is pretty bright. I'm optimistic about that. May take a long time, but it, 
it's on the road, I think. Do you think that fundamental technology change will need to happen, a big breakthrough in batteries or uh, something that really changes the economics? Well, Batteries are expensive. Yeah, batteries are real expensive. Uh, I can't answer that question because I'm not a physicist, and some people, physicists, tell me you can't change chemistry. You know, it is what it is. On the other hand, I think there's an effort, a lot of research on batteries, and I think we can only hope. But I can't answer that question, but mm-hmm. I hope so. For the first time, for the last hundred years, uh, petroleum's been the main source of fuel for transportation. Now we have uh, electricity. Some people want natural gas, uh, biofuels. There's now choices and competitions in the fuel marketplace that there wasn't for the first hundred years of General sure. Motors. How do you think that's going to affect personal mobility and cars, the way we get around and move our goods? Well, I think uh, petroleum is going to be the main source for some years to come, but I think uh, solar, wind, uh, electricity, but electricity has to be generated by something, you know, natural gas or coal or, mm-hmm. or oil. But I think we're slowly but surely moving in the direction of the things you're talking about. The uh, when when uh, Dan Ackerson was here, he talked about a possible uh, gasoline tax as as one way to to uh, address the externalities that when we burn fossil fuels, the, the we don't pay for the full consequences of the fossil fuels. Um, is that something you think could be useful, a gasoline tax, or would that be unwise? I have no comment on the gasoline tax. No comment, Gray. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't studied that. I don't know what the impact would be. I don't mean to be put offish, but I just don't know. How about um, in the re- recent years, the CAFE standards for auto miles uh, have doubled, gone up to it's now going to be like right. 55 miles a gallon. That partly happened because uh, the federal government was a large shareholder in General Motors and had just rescued the industry. They agreed to some pretty aggressive goals to double the fuel mileage in a pretty short period of time after they had been flat for right. almost 20 years. Well, the CAFE standards, of course, apply to all makers. Right, yep. So it's it's not only GM. And I guess the question is, is that doable? And yes, I think it is, or I don't think anybody would have agreed to it. I'm no genius on that. In fact, I, I am not well-versed, but I think, and our engineers said we could do some of that. There are a lot of other questions related to that uh, that I think maybe requires some more consideration. You know, ethanol is a okay product. It's a good product. But if you put ethanol in gasoline, your miles per gallon go down. It's not near as efficient. And so I don't know if we're talking about standards with pure gasoline or gasoline with ethanol added. I don't know. To meet some of the standards, the diesel engines, for example, have to have almost the equivalent of a chemical laboratory attached to them to meet the CAFE standards. But overall, and there was a lot of conversation, you could have a tire or a set of automobile tires with less friction. But the problem is you can't stop. You know, you you put on the brake, but you don't stop. So there's a lot of considerations and all that stuff. But I think the CAFE standards can be met, and I think uh, probably will be. And do you think that they're going to force innovation in the industry? Is that going to, because 
some automakers have been here and said, we're not sure how we're going to meet those goals, but we have to come up with some pretty creative ways to do it. Could well, that- I think we can do that, and I think people have thought that through. I think there's uh, different transmissions. There's different things you can do to the motor, perhaps tires. There's a, a lot of different ways to approach that. And, you know, some of them have some drawbacks, but I think in general we're going to reach those goals. Do you think that U.S. manufacturers and U.S. companies can be competitive relative to Germans and Japanese? I've uh, always thought we could be more than competitive. I think we can be. I'm sure we will be. I'm very optimistic about our uh, ability to compete. And, yes, I think I think we can do that. The uh, the market share of General Motors hit 18% in 2012. At one point, I think, near, well, more than half of the cars sold in the country were were General Motors. That, according to an AP story, was perhaps the lowest share in history for, for General Motors, which suggests that consumers are looking at uh, other choices in the marketplace and buying Japanese, European, et cetera. Do you think that will come back? I mean, that – uh, is that a competitive position? Well, I think the market share is is an interesting thing to look at. First of all, we discontinued two lines, Oldsmobile. It's a Pontiac, smaller GM. Uh-huh. And so it's a smaller GM. Uh, back when GM had half market share, there weren't many competitors, as I remember. There were Chrysler, Ford, and GM. Now there's a lot of worldwide competitors, as you know, who who operate in this country. So I don't know that market uh, share is the question, although I personally think it will it will come higher. And you're right, it was over 50% at one time. But I think profitability and high-quality cars, cars that satisfy the consumer, should be the number one objective, and I think it will be. And I've read that American car companies are actually selling fewer cars, but because they shed some uh, of their fixed costs, they're actually uh, making more per car. Is that right? Well, let's say GM in the first quarter made over a billion dollars a couple of years ago. So we were doing okay at making money, yeah. Uh, another uh, company, co- country, uh, doing well at making money is China. And that has not been a f- – they really haven't been a factor, at least on imports on cars recently. Uh, but Buick exists today because of China. Uh, I think you write that – uh, Buick is popular in China. and Buick the, is very popular in China. And it would have been perhaps discontinued if it weren't for the Chinese market. I don't think that's true, but China is certainly a great market for Buick. And I took, uh, I took a great deal of pride in that it costs more to rent, lease, or buy a Buick in China than it did a Mercedes. Made me feel good. It was more, more popular. But it's done very well in China. But it's going to do well here, too. China's last emperor was uh, fond of Buicks, and that, yes. that people are, remember that very well there. But how do you think China will uh, play out? Will we see Chinese imports into the U.S. market? Will we see China develop uh, new technologies? Because they aren't really yet um, – it's a domestic market, but we haven't seen them on the global scale of cars. You know, I can't answer that, and I'm not close enough to it anymore, but I know the partner we had in China was a very good partner. And it was a 50-50 partnership. What happens in the future, I guess, uh, entrepreneurs and business people will be business people. So I guess we'll just have to see. If you're just joining us on the radio, our guest today at Climate One is Ed Whitaker, former chairman and CEO of AT&T and General Motors. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about the, the stock. You believe that the federal government 
should have sold the whole thing on day one. Tell us uh, about that. Well, you know, General Motors, uh, in rough terms, took $50 billion of your money and mine, taxpayer money. And I believe that was the right thing to do. But I believe General Motors should pay all that back. I mean, when you borrow something, I was brought up to understand that you should pay it back and not forget it. Well, at the IPO time, the stock was oversubscribed. That meant there were more people that wanted to buy it than was available to be bought. And it was also $33 and something a share. And had the government at that time elected to sell more or produced more stock, could have gotten a lot more money back for the taxpayer. There's still some to be paid back now. That was not our decision. That was the Treasury's decision for whatever reason they made that. I understand that. They sold so many shares. But they still own a a reasonable portion of GM, which I believe uh, GM has to pay you and I back, the taxpayer, over time. And it's still several billion dollars. So they have to do that. And that's a tough situation. Right now, General Motors uh, stock is about 20% below the IPO price. So you write, you'd say this gently, but they should have sold on day one. The, the taxpayers would have been better off. Uh, Ford is also down about 20% since that time. Uh, uh, Toyota and the S&P uh, index are up about 20% since then. So, uh, but that's a tough position now to say, well, the taxpayers are leaving some money on the table. Somebody's got to figure that out, Greg. <laughs> I'm not there, but I believe GM should pay back the, the taxpayer. It's selling for, I think, 28, 29 bucks now. I've forgotten exactly. And it went public at 33 something a share. So you're right, right. it's down right. 20%. But there's a way to figure that out. Well, and, and what the Treasury plans to do is gradually sell over time, dollar cost average out, so then they plan to, to get out. That's what they're currently well, doing. Well, they have sold some since I left, so it's a good sign. Uh, let's talk about the chairman, the roles of chairman and, and CEO. There's been some moves in companies recently to separate those roles, uh, for governance reasons. And you think that they, that that's, at least for GM, that's, that's not the right move. That they, the same person should hold both of those roles. Yes, I think, uh, the chairman and president or whatever title you want to put on a chief operating officer should be one and the same person. I believe that that, uh, leads to a more functional organization. I think you can move quicker. I don't think you uh, run into quite as much bureaucracy. I just think it works better. And for all companies or certain types of companies? Well, I don't know about all companies. I thought at AT AT&T it was best to have the chairman, president, whatever, together. I thought that at GM. I would probably think that about most companies, but I've not studied all of them, so I don't know. How about, uh, you touched briefly on this, uh, CEO compensation. One of the reasons that GM was hobbled, uh, because of, uh, government restrictions from paying competitive market salaries to a new chief, chief executive, uh, and that was because of the bailout had those restrictions on it. Um, so how did that affect GM's ability to recruit talent? And then I want to get to sort of the broader question of CEO well, compensation. That, that's a good question. GM was under what's known as TARP, the Troubled Asset Protection or, or Relief Plan, which meant that the U.S. Treasury was the one who determined who got paid and how much at GM. Certainly, I think you could say in the short term all the 
the high-paid executives pretty much left early on. I think you could say that uh, over time, I don't think it hurt GM in the interim in the few months, but over time, if you can't be competitive in the area of compensation, uh, you're not going to do as well as your competitors. Hopefully that'll go away. I think it has slowly gone away. And I think all of us could see if you, if you can't be competitive, you're not going to get the talent you need. You write uh, fondly about Steve Jobs in the book. Uh, uh, Fortune magazine a few years ago had a cover story with Steve Jobs, and the, and the headline was the great CEO pay heist. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about executive compensation, getting a beyond sort of rank and file compensation. I wonder if you have any thoughts about about that. Well, I do. Uh, you know, if you take more risk, if you if you uh, are responsible for the share owners and providing uh, good returns to them, and if you take more risk, you ought to be paid more. So then it becomes a question of how much more. I don't have the answer to that. I know. You know, when I see some CEO salaries, I say that's too much, and I know that just because I know it, and you probably feel that too. Uh, Anyone to put an absolute dollar? Yeah, but I won't tell you. (laughs) But to put an absolute dollar number on it, I don't think you can do that. I think it's uh, there's got to be some reasonableness, and uh, but more risk. If you do better for the stockholders, you ought to be paid more. It's just a question of how much. But does the system uh, taking on risk in the short term to for a, a CEO who knows they're going to be in office for three or five years, they, they're kind of incented to front load some risk that might bring problems down the road for their successor, but they're gone, they got their compensation, and the shareholders take a hit later. That's true, and I can't argue with that. You know, a CEO's major role is to perpetuate the company. And uh, that's for a lot of reasons, for employees, for customers, for stockholders, for whoever. But that's sort of the number one role. And I don't disagree. There's some who take a short-term view, make a lot of money, and move on. And I guess that's one of the frailties of the system. But I don't know many like that. The um, A lot of talk these days about too big to fail. You ran a company that was bailed out by the government. Do you have thoughts about... Uh, you clearly said GM should have been rescued. Do you have thoughts about other companies in the future that should be bailed out? You know, Lehman Brothers, was that the right thing? A lot of debate about that. So if down the road, when should the government come in and when should they let something fall, even if it's painful? Can't answer that really for sure. I, d- I don't even know how I feel about it. I feel different day to day, you know, and I think I could make a valid argument either way. Too big to fail. I don't know. I can see the consequences of some company that's large. I can see the other side of it, too. I can't. I don't know how to answer Hypothetical. that. Um, a lot of characters in this story. Looking back, you know, who do you think were the heroes in this story? Who were the villains and who were the victims? Well, the heroes certainly were the people at General Motors. And when I got there, they were embarrassed, as you might guess. They'd gone bankrupt. Uh, some of them were ridiculed by their neighbors. Their neighbors wouldn't speak to them. You work for a bankrupt company. And so they were hungry to prove that they were as good as any workers in the world. So that was a big plus. And I found the people there to be terrific. Uh, I found uh, once the organization was simplified, 
Once we kind of had an organization chart, once we assigned accountability, responsibility uh, to employees and management people, that things picked up. So I think the people at General Motors were clearly the heroes. Those that had to leave, they didn't feel so good about it. And you employed a, a method of management by walking around, which I think was made famous. But I forget if it was David Packard or Walter Hewlett. But management by walking around is something you did. Going into the lunchroom, showing up places where the executives had never showed up before. Yeah. There's a very cloistered existence, separate elevators, parking garages for the rarefied air for the executives at GM. Well, I believe that you should treat people like you like to be treated. And I believe we're all alike, and that is we want to feel like we belong, that we have a part in what you're trying to accomplish, that we can do something uh, good, we can feel successful, we can participate in it. And I think that needs to, needs to be conveyed. You know, people are the biggest asset of any company. If you don't have the people with you, you just don't make it. You might make it for a few months. And I think that's true of any business. If you don't have the people with you, you're just not going to get there. And I enjoyed, I grew up uh, in an environment where I was comfortable with workers, you know, everybody. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm a social person, and that's just the way I manage. I like to see who's doing everything. And the villains and victims in the GM story? Well, I think. I hate to put it in terms of villains. I think just didn't. There, there was a mentality at General Motors that whatever we do is right, and if we change anything, it'll be wrong, and therefore we're doing it the right way. And they kind of rode that philosophy into bankruptcy. And the quality of the cars was probably not very good. The designs weren't very good. And you put your head in the sand over a period of years, you go bankrupt. You just you just go broke. Uh, I think that's all been turned around. I think GM has a terrific future. I, I think it has great people. I think the villains were, you know, I believe management's responsible for everything in a company, pretty much, the direction, uh, the action. So I guess you'd have to say past management responsible for that. Not sure you'd call them a villain, but you'd, you'd, you'd say that, you know, they refused to adapt or change or to do something. They were, went bankrupt. I'm not saying this is a villain either, but there's a Bill Ford, executive chairman of Ford Motor Company, was here, and he told an amazing story about how GM was on its knees, and GM went to Ford and said, hey, let's merge. Uh, Ford was in a much stronger financial position, but GM thought that this kind of forced marriage, GM would still have the upper hand because, well, they were GM. That's the GM mentality, or the old old mentality. Could do no wrong. What was the biggest challenge you faced in your what in your time at GM? What was the hardest thing to do? I think the hardest thing to do was to convince the entire workforce that we were supposed to design build and sell the world's best vehicles, get the right management team to do that, convey that to everybody and do it every day, every hour, whatever it took to get the mental change so that everybody would see that in a short period of time we could be profitable again instead of just kind of lumbering along like we had been. Get the right people in the right job is the key. 
this is what's hard to get. Even after bankruptcy, they still thought they could kind of keep lumbering along. We did nothing wrong. The economy got us. How much? We did nothing wrong. The economy got us. How much of that do you think is because a lot of the senior people were lifers who didn't know anything else? They'd never worked anywhere else. And some of the executives had a real hard time making decisions about firing cousins or that it was so inbred and familial that they didn't see the outside. Well, I think that was it. I don't think any of you could believe the bureaucracy that existed there. I just don't think you could understand how much bureaucracy was there. I mean, you couldn't get anything done. Nothing. It's just that way, and it was the GM way, and, you know, for whatever reason, I guess it worked for a number of years, but it sure didn't work. But AT&T is also a company, and you're also on the board of ExxonMobil. A lot of these other companies where people spend their whole life and career, yet they don't get as insular as the auto companies did. Well, I think you'd have to say that's management, board of directors, uh, the way you feel about things. Uh, I, for one, uh, know that simpler is better. Simple organizations, right people, right job. Stay focused on the things that need to be done. Forget the superfluous. You know, at GM, if it didn't involve designing, building, or selling the world's best vehicle, we didn't want it around. You kind of have to take that attitude. At one point, they owned a satellite company. Okay. Owned a lot of things. And did great (laughs) services for this country during the war. Built a lot of armaments. GM helped win the war. World War II did an incredible amount for this country. We're talking with Ed Whitaker, former chairman and CEO of AT&T and General Motors. I'm Greg Dalton. What would you do differently? What was one of the uh, things that, if you replay the tape, what would you do differently at your time at GM? Well, one of the things I might think about, I, I had a real dilemma there because I was, I didn't think I was old, but the calendar said I was pretty old, you know. And I didn't know how long to stay. And I loved the job, and I loved the people, and it was a lot of hard work. And we got profitable much quicker than anybody thought. And I had gone to Detroit with the intention of staying through the IPO, which everybody thought would be two or three years, and then I'd go back to San Antonio. Well, uh, we did so well that we were ready for an IPO in nine months. It was time to do that and become a public company again. I was really torn about leaving so early, uh, but I decided that whoever replaced me needed a longer runway rather than me sticking around for another few months or a year or so. Somebody needed a longer runway, and Dan's younger than I. He could stay longer, or whoever was picked. Uh, I might rethink all that. I so don't you, know. So you might have stayed. And one last question. We're going to bring uh, the microphone out. Uh, That's just one thing, but there's more. So you... you you might have stayed. Well, I think, I think I've always been concerned. I don't know if I would or not, but, you know, it's always bothered me that I had to leave relatively early. On the other hand, we were making a lot of money. Uh, you could see that the momentum was building in the company. You could see its future was going to be pretty bright. And so that's one thing. Two is I, I would have changed a lot of things, Greg, but, you know. And, Dan Ackerson was not your choice. You wanted Mark Royce to uh, to be the next CEO. That didn't work out. Tell us. Well, that's uh, well. Let me explain that. 
Mark Royce was a talented young executive in GM, and he was a what they call a car guy. He understood cars. I didn't. Uh, don't think Dan's really well versed in cars either. He probably is now, but we weren't at the time. And if we were looking for a car guy or an internal candidate, uh, he would have been my choice at that point in time. I've always felt that internal candidates are better than external candidates for most businesses. I believe if you promote from within, most of the time you're better off because they have a passion for the business. They they know the people. They know the product. And so that's just a general feeling I have. But Mark was, uh, as an insider, the one. I think Dan's done a terrific job. I think GM continues to... You know, have good designs, bring new products out, make quality stuff. I think Jim's building the best cars in the world. We're going to invite your participation uh, now. If you'd like to uh, present a question, the line will form here. And with our producer, Jane Ann, uh, invite you to uh, join us with one one-part question or comment, and I'll help you uh, keep it brief. Uh, so now let's go to our audience questions for uh, for Ed Whitaker, former chairman of General Motors. Uh, pleasure to listen to you, Mr. Whitaker. Uh, you have indicated in your talk uh, your belief in the uh, tremendous future, if you like, of um, uh, American manufacturing sector, your belief in the country. Yet at the same time, one of the great um, companies in the country's history almost collapsed. Um, is, is there other such things happening in other boardrooms around this country where incredible companies are, you know, how, how, how is that not going to happen again? How are you going to make uh, companies of the future, of the present and of the future, incredible so that they, they can actually do what you said? Well, I, that's a big job, Ed. How are you going to do that? That's a big job. <laughs> you know, I have great faith in the American workers and American ingenuity. And I understand what you're talking about. It's a complicated question. But I think we can be competitive, and I think we can be competitive with ingenuity with, in a lot of different ways. I think we have to figure a lot of that out. But I think General Motors could be, as an example, or AT&T, competitive with anybody in the world. And it's sort of what goes around comes around. I think we have the ability to do that. I can't tell you specifically everything that will happen. But I think the uh, the American worker is better than any in the world now. And I think they have access to more technology. I think we have ingenuity. I think we have dri- drive, will, ambition. And I think we'll figure all that out. I guess it boils down to I just believe we can do that. Let's have our next question for Ed Whitaker. Uh, Ed, you mentioned ethanol in your talk. I'm sure you know the reason that ethanol gives poorer mileage is because you're putting it into an engine optimized for gasoline. If you reverse the procedure and optimize the engine for ethanol, ethanol gets better mileage than gasoline. Ethanol has perhaps one twentieth. I think I'm in trouble here. Well, no, he knows it, what I'm, he's talking about. <laughs> that, that, that's the case, and ethanol has maybe one twentieth to one fiftieth the carbon imprint of gasoline. Oh, I know that. And the ethanol engine, optimized for ethanol, costs maybe $100 more to make than the gasoline engine. So as a a consumer, I want to be able to buy an engine that's optimized for ethanol. Why can't I do that? 
Well, I think some of the engines are being optimized over time, and you're right, it's a relatively, as I understand it, a relatively inexpensive process, and I think that's, looks like to me that's going to happen over time. I don't think there's much doubt about it. So, I understand outboard motors, same way, all engines the same way. I can't answer your question, and you know more about it than me. I said I wasn't a car guy, but, but... You know, it's obviously going to go that way because it's cleaner, et cetera, et cetera. You make a very good point that I really can't speak to. Let's have our next question for Ed Whitaker. Thank you for speaking with us today. Maybe we can find something other than corn to make it out of too, right? That's uh, that, yeah. That'd be helpful. I see why they made you That's that's I'm what? You're the, um, I see why they made you CEO of Motors. Which is? Let's have our next question for Ed Whitaker. I don't have that much praise, but um, you, you talked a little bit about battery technology with with the Chevy Volt and, and the promise of battery technology, and, and we've seen how important batteries are in not just within cars and automobiles, but within cell phones, within uh, electronics. Right. Now we're seeing the, the importance of battery technology within airplanes, the incidences that Boeing has had recently. Um, and, and the question that I have is, is should the federal government be stepping up and investing more in battery technology? We've seen some of the, the politicizing of federal government infusion of money into uh, energy and renewable energy projects looking at, at uh, A123 and other projects. Should the federal government be doing more, and, and what will it take to get uh, better batteries uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now? In my very limited understanding – uh, it's a matter of basic physics, and the potential between two materials governs what's going to happen in a battery. Whether that can change through laws of physics or not, I don't know. <clears throat> Should the government be more involved? I guess that depends on your philosophy. We've, we've historically depended on private industry to do that, uh, capitalism with with the motive. I don't know, <clears throat> but I know there is a tremendous amount of work going on in batteries in the car companies, in entrepreneurs, in other locations. Should the government do it? I guess that's a matter of your philosophy. My philosophy would say no, shouldn't. So uh, just follow up there. I mean, you ran AT&T, which obviously is, is a data company as much as a inter- uh, voice company, <clears throat> excuse me, these days, uh, with the Internet being a big part of that. The government, particularly the Department of Defense, played a big role in starting the Internet in the early days. Do you think that was a proper role of government? Well, I think uh, everybody, including a vice president, took credit for the Internet, didn't they? Yeah. Hmm? yeah. But in this case, but in this case, the DOD, it really was the Defense Department that, that did it. Well, that's partially true. But, you know, that's a defense thing. I'm not saying that's good or bad. They did play a big role in it. Uh, they also control a lot of the spectrum, as you know. Mm-hmm. And to handle increasing amounts of data, we need more and more spectrum. And that's got to be figured out, too. I'm not saying it's a bad or good thing. I'm just saying it was my personal mm-hmm. belief. Let's have our next question for Ed Whitaker. Uh, yeah, since 1955, when I bought my 38 Oldsmobile for $50, I've always had American cars with maybe a couple of three years when I was a semi-hippie with Volkswagens. Uh, I went out, and the last remaining car company in um, – 
San Francisco was a Ford. So about three, two and a half years ago, I bought myself a Mustang, which every kid wanted. And uh, in about a year, they moved out of the city, closed it, and now they're about 20, 20 miles down the uh, road in uh, Colma, which is business industry. Is so you're asking a GM guy why Ford moved? Can I, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just, just saying that all, there's no domestic cars. So the question I have is why cannot there be a domestic car company in San Francisco, a thriving affluent city, and especially with your vote with all this greenies running around? You mean a dealer where you dealer, can buy yeah. one. That's yeah. what you're talking about. Right. <clears throat> right. Well, I think uh, all the dealers that I know, and I know quite a few of them, move where the population moves. And I know in San Antonio where we live, the Cadillac dealer announced yesterday he's moving out north of the city because that's where the action is. There are more people out there, and therefore there's not going to be one downtown. You know, they're like a franchisee. Uh, they're like a, a McDonald's. You can't pick where they want to go. They're trying to maximize uh, their sales potential, and downtown is not it for most of them. At least that's what it seems to me. So they're all moving out where the people are and commute. There's, there's another piece of that, which is what is American these days when uh, GMs are, or Fords are made in Mexico and Canada and Nissan's made in Tennessee and BMW's right. in Alabama? It's a global economy. We're all dealing with that. That's just what it is. Let's have our next question. I'll Good go. evening. I have, uh, my question is what made you the perfect fit for the job? And if I may, I have another question. Do you did you understand what makes you the per, what made you the perfect fit for the job? Oh, I, I wasn't the perfect fit for the job. Probably people more qualified than me. As I said, there the only two things that qualified me maybe was I'd run a, lo, a large company for a long time, and I dealt with unions a long time and organizations and things like that. But in terms of car knowledge, I was obviously not the right choice. But we did okay, and I, maybe we proved you don't have to be a car genius to run a car company. Well, I mean, you know. Al Mulally, who was came from Boeing to Ford, yes. was not a car guy, and he helped Ford get back right. on track. Yeah. So there is a, a line of view that it... Yeah. But I wasn't the perfect choice. Yes, welcome. of Michigan, my first car, a 51 Chevy when I Me was in... Me too. That's exactly what I was in the Army at the was. time. And uh, across the country three times. Uh, one reads a lot about the problems of the city of Detroit. How is GM interacting with the city? And what do you feel the responsibilities are for a company, an employer in the metropolitan area in which it resides? Oh, I think that's a thoughtful question. Uh, General Motors, when I got there, had plans to move out of downtown Detroit and go to Warren move out to Warren, which is, you know, 20, 30 miles out uh, northwest. And I stopped that. One of the first things I did was stop that move for two reasons. One, it was going to cost millions of dollars to move out of Detroit. We had the space in downtown Detroit. And secondly, really, when you think about it, GM's the only business in Detroit. You have to go there, but there are no grocery stores, no dry cleaners, there's nothing like that anymore, and I thought uh, we'd be better served and Detroit would be better served, and we were, the, I guess, the only taxpayer there. 
So we decided to stay there. The interactions with Detroit were good. I hope they stay that way. The Rensen is a is a big building in downtown Detroit. And Detroit, as you know, has got a lot of challenges, but I, I know GM's going to be part of that going forward and see what happens. Hopefully it'll improve. And on moving, you're speaking as someone, you did move uh, a company once for, out, out of Missouri to, to Texas, and that can be a very disruptive process. And That's you write that good. when AT&T moved, that was very, disruptive. a very sad day. Yeah, yeah. it was a very sad day. Let's the have saddest our- day. You did in your talk mention something about the bureaucracy. General Motors probably at one point was had budgets, etc., exceeding some countries in the world. You got to speak up. Uh, you talked about the bureaucracy, uh-huh. and I'm saying that General Motors at one point in time at least had budgets in excess that certain countries in the world have. Uh, what would your takeaway be as to these large, huge organizations and bureaucracy which sometimes sound the death knell of many entities. After your experience at General Motors, what did you gain from that and what would you have to espouse to others about the bureaucracy issue? Well, I think bureaucracy develops when people don't have enough to do. I think when they're not involved in the end product and they want to feel important and they want to feel like they've contributed to the end product, and management doesn't provide that for them, then I think they'll get busy making themselves feel important by putting in a new rule, a new law, a new standard, a new something, and that equals bureaucracy right away. And I think that happens when when you don't involve your people. They don't feel needed. They don't feel important. They don't feel like they're contributing to the end product. To make themselves feel good, and you and I are the same way, we'll invent something so we do feel important. Most people will. And that equals bureaucracy. That is bureaucracy. You know, we need another test on this. We need to examine this. This needs to be under the microscope. This needs to go through somebody for review. We need a consultant to do this. And all of a sudden, if you have people that don't feel needed, wanted, and have no desire to, to contribute to the end product, you've got bureaucracy. I'm not saying AT&T didn't have any bureaucracy. It did. GM had tons of bureaucracy, and I think it builds up when people want to feel important and you put them in a position where they can put in something else, and all of a sudden you've got a bureaucracy that can't be penetrated. But you also write about not being uh, focused totally on numbers, the Six Sigma thing, which is popular in some circles right. of, of, uh, of corporate America, that that's not the right way to measure and manage either. Well, Six Sigma, in my judgment, uh, management doesn't put any skin in the game or they don't have much to risk. Six Sigma, the objectives are sort of set by the management, and then the employees are given these objectives, and if they don't meet them, you know, the top 10% get fired. I mean, bottom 10% get fired. Well, I think it puts the onus on the employees and not management. I think management gets a free walk pretty much with Six Sigma. That's my only quarrel with it. It's been very successful for some people. As we uh, wrap up here, you mentioned climate change earlier. How serious do you think climate change is and what should we do about it? Well, I don't know. I'm from San Antonio. It hasn't rained this year. 
and it didn't rain much last year and it didn't rain much the year before and we're in a drought and whether that's a, a cycle or a cyclical, I don't know, but we sure need the rain. I understand it rained a lot out here earlier. Uh, I think climate is very serious. I think it's just common sense and I think that's what it is. If, if you're doing things to the planet you shouldn't be, it's going to have a negative consequence. I can't go much deeper than that, but it just seems like common sense. I think it is. So we're doing things we shouldn't be. How should we change that? How do we correct that as we wrap up here and think about? Well, I think the things that we all think about, you know, less, less emissions, uh, more care for the things, uh, conservation of water. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Is that going to hurt business? Well, it has the potential to. I think good management uh, focused on that can probably help that situation a lot. I'm a great believer that good management can do a lot of good in a lot of areas. We have to uh, end it there. Our thanks to Ed Whitaker, former chairman and CEO of AT&T and General Motors. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming today. Thank you, Greg.